everyone. Welcome back to the Faculty of Horror podcasting from the horrid halls of academia. I'm Alex West with Andrea Subasati. And we are here today to talk about horror superheroes. Oh, I thought we were here today to party. No, Andrea, no. There's no blood rave tonight? Not tonight. Damn. Really, what, what time do you think a blood rave starts? Ah, you're right. Way past my bedtime. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I would love to think like I could have blood raved back in the old days, but. Did you rave in the old days? I went to one rave. Uh huh. And I didn't do any drugs. Uh huh. And so by 3 a.m., I was really tired. And me and my friend Joe were like, why are all these people hugging pillows? And we looked at each other and went, Oh, yeah. So no raves. I mean, my blood rave these days is like my favorite bottle of $14 rosé and a friend over. That's how I party. (laughs) Well, horror and superheroes, horror and not so superheroes. We've talked a little bit about antiheroes, reluctant heroes, but I thought this was a really great pairing of two movies that, uh, that cross genres in interesting ways. Don't always work. Don't always hold up, but sometimes they do. Yeah, and we picked these two films because they are kind of like almost complete 180s of each other in so many ways. In quality, watchability, uh, (laughs) one might also argue politics, uh, you know, the very essence of them. Uh Uh, But we're going to get into them, and today we're going to talk about uh, 1998's Blade and 2005's Constantine. Um, But first, I wanted to give us all a bit of a background, a bit of a foundation so we can talk about superheroes, because superheroes are so omnipresent. We are in, I think it's phase four of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. They're still trying to kind of make uh, the DC universe happen. And then there's also a lot of almost counter-programming with the series like The Boys. Mm -hmm. And so there's a lot of discourse right now about superheroes. So we thought we would take it back, you know, a few decades-ish and, you know, see how some of these origins started to build and grow uh, to the really big popular moment they're having right now. Oh, yeah. Dominating the box office. Absolutely. And TV, I would argue. Uh, It's huge. I mean, um, there's a lot to say. I don't have a whole lot of background in superhero comics. I was really enamored with Batman when the first movie came out and really a lot when the second movie came out. And it was the kind of thing where if I would tell people that I was a Batman fan, the dude bros would start quizzing me on all the comics and uh, making me feel like I didn't know anything and I was unworthy of even liking Batman. And so I liked Batman less after that. And it kind of turned me off comics. That's very toxic toxic fandom to this day. Oh, yeah. And almost like any fandom, you could argue. That's true. But yeah, kind of my entry point of superheroes was the, um, I guess it was the mid-late 90s, the X-Men animated uh, oh, series. Oh, God, I loved that show. I had such a crush on Gambit. Ah, mon chéri. He wasn't in every episode, but when he was, I was like, yay! No, he is definitely one of those um, hot cartoon characters, Mm -hmm. which leave us feeling very weird when we're older. Yes, indeed. Um, And and from there, I kind of would pick up some of the comic books and, you know, they were pretty cheap to get. And so they were an easy access. I also um, grew up reading Archie comics, which aren't superheroes, but that kind of got me familiar with the medium as well. I also had that same uh, experience with the Batman movies. I think Batman Returns, you know, fucking Michelle Pfeiffer. Like, come on. And then from there, it's been kind 
of weird. Like there's been so many attempts to get franchise started and sometimes they go, but they don't really hit. And then to see as someone who studies film and is interested in film as a business to see how the MCU grew and mm-hmm. grew and grew and is now in this really strange phase that it finds itself in. Mm-hmm. But I'm curious to see what they do next and, and if it continues to grow or if it starts to plateau more. Yeah. But let's go back a wee bit just to the very basic idea of it. Superheroes are characters who possess superhuman abilities. Uh, it could be from intelligence to otherworldly powers and or command of magical forces. Their goal is to make the world a better place and uphold an agreed-upon morality with an overarching goal to protect the population at large, often from their nefarious counterparts, the villains, the Joker to the Batman, let's say. They grew to prominence in the 1930s through comic strips and then comic books, but their wide-ranging appeal has allowed them to make the move to film, TV, and video games, and more, probably, that I don't know about because I'm old and I don't keep up with the culture like I used to. Um, Superheroes had their lineage all the way back to Greek mythology, as well as figures like Robin Hood. Uh, And superheroes have done everything from punching Hitler to leading epic space battles. And there are always new characters being written into the lore and characters who have seemingly died being brought back to life. Now, one year I wanted to single out in particular, and, and um, I, I think I've mentioned that I took this class probably in our graphic novel episode mm-hmm. all those years ago, uh, a class in my undergrad about graphic novels. And I kind of had a similar experience to you when you would say I like Batman. Uh, me and my friend Joanne took this class together and we had like a general knowledge of the culture and, you know, we knew Ghost World. Mm -hmm. But there's a lot of stuff we had to catch up to do. But it was like that class was filled with super fans and like the teacher was a super fan of graphic novels and like Joanne and I were kind of like left on our own to figure it out. Mm. But one thing I really took away from that class is the importance of the year 1986. Okay. Not just because it was the year after I was born, (laughs) but because two very important pieces of work came out in a serial edition and then were turned into graphic novels uh, that would come to define the next generation of comics, their narrative, uh, and so many other things we almost take for granted right now. So the first piece of content that came out in 1986 that I think begins to define this era is Watchmen, written by Alan Moore and art by Dave Gibbons and coloring by John Higgins. This was released as a serial in 1986 and then it became uh, its own graphic novel in 1987. And Watchmen is such a like interesting piece because to read it now, it feels like, oh yeah, this is a narrative we're really familiar with. But at the time, in like the mid-late 80s, this was something that was really new to the genre in many ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was really well done. It has this like really strange central mystery and a lot of iconic characters and moments that we now kind of see repeated a whole awful lot. And what's really incredible is that Alan Moore uses this anxiety and this growing distrust we have in institutions that was really rising in the late 80s to turn it to, well, let's look at superheroes and what they defend and what they stand for. What is the content we're consuming actually about? And in this story, Watchmen proposes an alternate reality where superheroes helped the U.S. to win the war in Vietnam and cover up the Watergate scandal. 
and it examines what happens to the systems of power as humanity falls apart. Yeah, I thought Watchmen was, I think it was the first instance I had ever witnessed of really breaking that fourth wall in terms of the people who get into these outfits and do stuff like that. I mean, obviously, we know Batman's alter ego, we know Superman's alter ego, but these were a bit more everyday people, and yet there was one super duper hero in their midst. There was one who possessed such supernatural powers. And I think his growing distance from humanity, his growing apathy from humanity really struck me. And uh, I still think about The Watchmen all the time. Yeah, it's one that when I read it, I didn't really connect with it and Mm -hmm. I still don't. But the ideas in it, I think, are really interesting. Mm -hmm. And so that's why I'm like, yeah, no, it's not quite for me, but I recognize the place that it has. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's interesting to think that such an important piece of discourse came through the genre not that long ago. Yeah less than 40 years ago. So the other thing that came out in 1986 was the Dark Knight graphic novel series uh, that was written and penciled by Frank Miller, and it reintroduced a darker, more mature version of Batman. This took the kind of Adam West, blam, pow, popo, Batman into a much darker territory. Batman's much older, Robin has died, and he's got to, you know, take to the streets again because Gotham's falling into mayhem, and Batman's Turn reawakens the Joker, and it's really dark, and it's so much about aging Mm -hmm. and being old, and deals with these really heady themes of uh, what happens when we ask so much of one person Mm -hmm. and the toll it takes on them, and then the toll it takes on all the people and systems around them. Mm -hmm. Um, And that, you know, I think has gone on to have such a huge impact in so many ways. And I think even now with the most recent Batman film with Robert Pattinson, your other boyfriend. Friend, mm-hmm. um, it, you see echoes of that, even though it's like a much younger version of Batman. In that, I think the Dark Knight has influenced so many ways we think about Batman and, and different characters. Yeah, Batman's had quite a journey and quite a mainstream journey. I'd argue. Like, I don't know if there's a superhero who's actually had as many movies, as much retconning as like the animated series is Ugh. hugely influential. From what I understand, I used to watch it a little bit after school, but I think after a while it got really dark and it got really serious. And, and I always loved the uh, animated movie they did, Mask of the Phantasm. Uh-huh, uh-huh. The Killing Joke is like yeah. a big fucking deal. And you know, I think we're going to talk more about this later, but Batman's relationship with police mm-hmm. you know, changed. Yeah. Let's put it that way. And I think both of these stories for our purposes today, obviously did not create the idea of an anti-hero, but I think repopularized it to a certain degree and gave us some different ways to think about it. Like if you think of the Watchmen, one of the first things I think about is Rorschach, mm-hmm. not only because of the iconic costume and, and uh, the way he was drawn, um, but his like monologues mm-hmm. and like the darkness, but he's also a hero. You know, again, we've talked about anti-heroes before, um, but just as a refresher, an anti-hero is a character who lacks conventional heroic qualities and is often motivated primarily through self-interest. And that can change. The self-interest kind of is on a scale and it slides back and forth sometimes. Mm -hmm. And that's usually the thrust of the narrative. And what I think is so interesting about this topic, horror and superheroes, is that tension between a genre like horror which at its best, I think, is something very subversive. And what is traditionally a much more conservative one, Mm -hmm. the superhero genre. Black and white, good and evil. Mm -hmm. 
And there is a reason why Alan Moore, as much of a curmudgeon as he is, has refused to take part in the films made of his stories Mm -hmm. because he's like, no, you're going to fuck it up. And often they have. Often they really have. I got a little bit more into comics again later in life. It was always a question of access. It was always a question of, uh, you know, I I wasn't ready to commit to buying it again and again and having a collection of these skinny little things. If it came out in a compilation or a graphic novel, then I was into it. But there was a bit of a comic, uh, not a revival, but there there was a tweak that happened somewhere in my early adulthood where Marvel Zombies came out. Oh, yeah. Where it's like, let's really fuck with this formula. Let's let's take all these characters and put them in an entirely different context. Uh, even Superman, who I was always not at all interested in, because what a fucking goody two-shoes. There was that Superman Red Sun. Have you heard of this? No. So Superman Red Sun suggests a reality in which Superman landed on Earth uh, behind the Iron Curtain in the 80s. And so he's this, like, super commie Superman, and he's got a sickle on his chest instead of the S. Uh, I believe there's an animated film. I think it's on Netflix. I haven't checked it out oh yet. Oh my god, but, I want to read that. Right? Like, just like that there's so endless tweaks to this, and I think, I, I'm speculating here, but I think there was a long period of, you know, these stories and these characters are canon, and then there was just a great appetite for tweaking the formula. And, and I think to that point, like, horror and superhero genres are both very indebted to tropes. Mm-hmm. And I think we're both in, like, the two genres kind of parallel to each other. You know, you have to fuck with the formula. Yeah. You know? Flip it on its head. And you can do that in so many ways. And it's interesting to see what they've been able to do in film versus what they've been able to do in the comics Mm -hmm. and what gets lost in that translation. Mm -hmm. So much. Because money. But any hoozle. I can't remember the first time I saw Blade, but I have seen it many times. I also don't remember the first time I saw Blade, but fun fact, Blade was the first DVD I ever owned. That rules! And so I just watched a lot because I was like, I have a DVD! This is my movie! And it's not like I had a DVD player to play it on. I used to watch it on like the fucking like desktop. Yeah. And I just like sit when my mom was at working in her office and be like, time to watch Blade! And then like cue the rave music. So then it was me being like 12, 13, just like bopping by myself to a blood rave. Yeah. Oh my God. I could not sit still in my seat when I was rewatching it, but uh, I've seen it many times. I rewatching it again. I was like, holy shit, does this ever hold up? But yeah, things are different now and we we look at art differently, but uh, I've got a lot to say. I'm sure you've got a lot to say. I've got a lot to say. Shall we say them? See you at the blood rave. Ooh. Better wake up. The world you live in is just a sugar-coated topping. There is another world beneath it. The real world. For thousands of years, they have existed among us. You keep your eyes open. They're everywhere. Chances are you've seen them yourself and didn't know it. A secret nation. Our livelihood depends on our ability to blend in. With a lust for power. We should be ruling the humans. These people are our food. They've got their claws into everything. Politics, finance, real estate. There's a war going on out there. He makes the weapons. I use them. Now, one will lead them to conquer mankind. Tonight, the age of man comes to an end. We're gonna be gods. And one will try to stop him dead. There are worse things out tonight than vampires. Like what? Like me. 
Blade's mother was attacked by a vampire while she was pregnant. Half immortal. You got the best of both worlds. All our strengths. None of our weaknesses. He is their greatest fear. And our only hope. Something seasoning all vampires. Stephen Dorff. You're one of them, aren't you? No, I'm something else. Blade. The film opens with a flashback sequence where a pregnant woman is in the ER in premature labor after being attacked by a vampire. She dies, but the baby survives. Such is the origin story of Blade, a vampire hunter who is half-human, possessing the strength, longevity, and bloodthirst of a vampire, but is impervious to sunlight, garlic, and silver. He is assisted by his partner Whistler, who invents and creates weapons for Blade to use while injecting him with a serum that curbs his blood cravings. After infiltrating a rave held by the vampire Deacon Frost, he rescues a hematologist named Karen who was bitten, and they wind up recruiting her as part of their team while she works on a cure for herself and possibly Blade, who is developing a resistance to Whistler's serums. It turns out that Deacon Frost is rebelling against the Council of Vampire Elders to break an ancient treaty between vamps and humans to awaken a blood god and incite an all-out war. The movie culminates in Frost's ritual, where Blade learns that Frost was the vampire who bit his mother, who is now an active vampire in Frost's entourage. Blade destroys them all, but when Karen presents him with a cure that would make him human again, he declines it in order to continue his crusade against vampire kind in Moscow. That is my very concise synopsis. Like, there's subplots, there's lots of characters in the other And movie. I mean, is it really a vampire movie if Udo Kier isn't in it? I fucking love Udo Kier in this movie. Oh my god. I mean, he's flawless in just about everything, but... And I forgot, like, having watched it so much as a first DVD that I had, and then not seeing it for so many years and coming back to it this week, I was like, oh, this is really horror. It is really horror. It's bloody. It's goopy. It's things gross. explode. Things flow like enucleations, defenestrations, bullets fly. It's got it all. Yeah. I think as a horror fan, it's like, what else could you want from something like this? Yes. And superheroes and vampires don't always mix so good, do they? <laughs> Morbius. But hey, it's morbid time. <laughs> Anywhere on Twitter. Not in the theaters, but on Twitter. I have not heard that one. That's great. Oh, uh, no, there was great. a whole, like, weird Twitter thing where, like, parts of film Twitter just made fun of it so much that Sony re-released Morbius in theaters, like, a couple weeks ago. Jeez. It was so bizarre, and then no one went to see it, and everyone on Twitter was like, no, this is a joke. We're making fun of it. Sony. Very funny. Don't ever listen to Twitter. Sometimes... Bad movies are worth it for the memes, is what I've realized. Do you remember when, I think it was Conan O'Brien lobbied to get Dirty Dancing back in theaters after no. like 30 years? Because he was like, oh yeah, we really have to do this. And he did, and it got back in theaters, and he revealed that he had never seen it and watched it and hated it. Oh. It was all a gag, but oh. I think it's just so funny when movie companies are like, oh yeah, yeah, you want this bad enough? Yeah. Everyone's so excited when they have like an organic viral moment mm -hmm. that they don't actually think about it. Anyway, speaking of organic viral moments... 
Let's talk about the vampire virus in this movie. Let's. I feel like they lay it out beautifully. The mythology unfolds really seamlessly. And, you know, they have the benefit of the fact that everybody knows vampires. Everybody knows uh, what they're supposed to be impervious to and what their weaknesses and, are. And the, and the mythology of vampires, like a general mythology, is present within the world. It's pretty much so intact. It's, you know, it's I think like, Whistler says, like, some of what you've heard is bullshit, but yeah. a lot of it is true. And I think, you know, this film has so many tensions between communities within this film. But just to take it back really quick, uh, the, the character of Blade, whose real name is Eric Cross Brooks, was created by writer Marv Wolfman and penciler Gene Colan. Uh, his first appearance was in The Tomb of Dracula, number 10, and that was in July 1973. And he was initially a supporting character, but he went on to have his own series. He came from a Wolfman's colon. I was hanging on to that. <laughs> That was really good. And yeah, I think what's so interesting about this film is there's so many different themes and so many things we're going to talk about with it. But one of the things I really picked up on was the tension between communities. And a lot of this stuff, I think, really went over my head when I was, you know, my preteen, early teens when mm -hmm. I was initially watching it. And then, you know, I think a lot of my own political education and understanding of the world has really shifted in the last 10 years. So it's like I'm finally kind of like picking up all the things that they were laying down in this film. But, you know, tensions between communities can be the tension between white and black communities, vampires and humans, purebloods and half-breeds, systems and institutions. The infighting within mm -hmm. is so predominant within it. And I think it's a testament to the film that it is so watchable and enjoyable by, you know, us in our late teens or whatever, being totally oblivious by all that. Um, you know, like it flows, it's entertaining. And then, yeah, on the rewatch, it's a large part of why it holds up. Uh, one thing I had flagged about this, and I, this is an attention between communities on the same level as the other communities we're going to talk about, but like, 90s goth. The 90s were a really big moment in terms of bringing goth culture to the mainstream, which had arguably peaked in the 80s, right here in Toronto, in fact. What? Yes. I moved here a little bit too late, but Queen West was essentially, you know, the birthplace of North American goth. It was a very underground scene. And you know, in the 90s, goth music was moving more into a more industrial techno direction. And these raves were often illegal, or at least unlicensed parties that were happening in random locales. At least that was the mythology I was fed. I never went to one, but it was like, you know where it's happening? Nobody knows you. We're not going to find out until the day of. It was like that, which is such a perfect setting for vampire culture to thrive. An all-night illegal party, you know, the scene of Tracy Lords leading somebody through a meat locker to this secret party where this guy's like, yeah, but then, you know, when shit goes down, that's where he's isolated and trapped. But movies like The Crow, The Craft, The Matrix, Lost Highway, they all drew these fashion and music cues from that scene. And obviously they were, you know, like I said, a little bit late from Goth's heyday, but uh, they were hugely influential in terms of the aesthetic. Mm. It feels like when I was watching Blade, that's like what the cool kids do. Mm -hmm. and, and I think they set it up so well. And it goes from party atmosphere to huge action set piece with Blade's arrival so quickly mm -hmm. and I think so well. And that's with director Stephen Norrington and 
then the writer, uh, David S. Goyer, who go on to, you know, still do a lot of stuff within, you know, this kind of horror superhero genre. And um, it's like such an incredible set piece. And I think there just hadn't been a huge set piece like that that could transition between two things um, that was so, you know, inauspicious. Mm-hmm. It's just kind of like, oh, it's a dance party. But then, you know, the shots and the music and, you know, sexy people, you're like, whoa. Yeah, oh, I was definitely like, whoa. It was like the same thing as The Lost Boys, where they mm. made being a vampire yes. look so badass and cool and youthful and young. And like, yeah, I want to be one of those because I want to party, party, party. And that was a, a very 80s context. And this was kind of the 90s counterpoint to that. I wanted to be around Deacon Frost. Oh, God. The 90s Stephen Dorff? Holy shit. Probably even today's Stephen Dorff. <laughs> <laughs> but like, you know what I loved or watching it this time was I realized that as Deacon's lust for power grew, uh-huh. so did um, his inability to button all the buttons on his shirt. And it really brought forth his 90s boyfriend bangs. I'm not mad. Not mad either. I just pointed it out. Like, the more powerful he got, the less that shirt was staying closed. <laughs> As it should be. But I think that the timing of this movie is so important. The opening scene where, you know, Blade's mother is dying as she's giving birth is in 1967. Yes. Uh, you know, right in the smack dab in the civil rights movement. And so the idea, even if you're not picking up on it in, you know, your first 20 viewings like I did, because mm-hmm. uh, I didn't know that history, but uh, like actually now think about, whoa, that's a black child being ripped from this black mother. And then later you learn he was homeless and he was dealing with all this kind of vampire bloodlust that he mm-hmm. couldn't control. And I was like, Jesus Christ, the system doesn't work. Yeah. Um, but they don't show that, right? They like don't. They just skip it's ahead. It's illusion to it. You fill in the blanks. And then with its you know, release in, within a set, within a present day context. So you know, let's say late nineties, we're coming off of events like the LA riots and the OJ Simpson trial. It's Rodney King. Yep. All of those elements that define so much of the discourse within North American and I think Western culture. Like there's this real anxiety about race so much so that it became normal to say things like, I don't see color. Mm-hmm. And now the amount of education that has gone into saying, actually, you know, that's not a good thing to say. And here's why. Mm-hmm. And that that was the kind of ethos I was raised in. Like, everyone's equal. We don't see color. Every, like, that was just a legit belief among, you know, the white family. The liberal. Well, yeah. yeah. The it, liberal that was the right side. And so now it's like I've had to have a lot of conversations with my parents. Mm-hmm. Just be like, you know, no, it's just different now. Mm-hmm. And these are the reasons. And I, I think they're getting there. Okay. I think so. But I think that this ultimate, you know, narrative and these themes within Blade, like the notion of blood purity um, as well as whiteness and the police is stuff I just didn't pick up on. Mm-hmm. Um, and also like the amount of microaggressions and then just straight up aggression towards Blade, like Deacon Frost calling him an Uncle Tom. Oh, the Uncle Tom. And routine. an animal. And like he's referred to all these things. And again, it's kind of like a sleek, snappy movie. So unless you're, you know, I think more tuned to it, you're not picking it up. Mm-hmm. I, I think that's all, that could be a really good thing for a film. But like the scene where the cop enters Karen's home yeah. without knocking, uh-huh. like without a warrant, without anything. Like uh-huh. that's a very different thing to talk about today. But this film is still making that same comment back then. Okay. So I think for us, it's like, oh, we just weren't tuned into that conversation. Yeah. And then I remember thinking it was funny how much Blade beat up that cop, like repeatedly. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And now I'm like, oh no, it's like hysterical and pretty badass. Yeah. Yeah. It's great. Yeah. Blade and- is a cab. 
<laughs> totally. And, uh, and, and yeah, Karen is, you know, at first she's like, is that really necessary? And then he tells her, you better open your eyes. And I think, yeah, Blade basically emancipates Karen in a way. At some point, like he's just telling her to wake up to the reality that the world has um, this layered hierarchy. And it's right after that that she's followed by those vampires in the in the elevator and she finds that cop in her place and everything changes for her after that. Yeah, I definitely picked up on a theme of once you wake up, there's no, no going back. And all of now this is woke. happening under your nose at all times, whether you know it or not. Yeah, it's incredibly prescient, this film, I think, in so many ways. And one of the things I was really interested in discovering was that, you know, I really wanted to go to a lot of Black writers to see how they understood the film. Yes. Um, and so I found some who were really into it. One of them is a writer by the name of Adelifu Nama, mm -hmm. and he wrote a book called Super Black, American Pop Culture and Black Superheroes. This book is fantastic. It's super interesting, and we'll link it in the show notes. Uh, but Nama points out that Blade made his comic book appearance a year after Blackula, the film which also sees a black man fighting against a white police force. Now, in reference to the film Blade, Nama writes, in the film, Blade and the other vampires are more or less carriers of a virulent virus. The linkage in the film between blood, vampires, and world political power suggests that vampirism is a politically destabilizing pandemic and a biological affliction more than a supernatural curse. In this sense, Blade is easily read as a film that reflects multiple anxieties concerning eugenics, HIV infection, genetics, and racial purity. Dot, 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 just to abridge, not since the black exploitation films of the past has such a bold black man and an intrepid black woman been teamed together in a major motion picture and shown successfully fighting the forces of evil. And that was the reading that I aligned with mm -hmm. predominantly in my watching it and in rewatching it even, you know, just this last week, I was like, no, there's a lot of cool representation stuff. I was picking up on a lot of the um, racialized elements that I, I wouldn't have picked up on before. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was really interesting and, you know, was really thinking about it. But then I did some other reading um, by some other Black writers who are less favorable mm -hmm. about Blade. And one of them is a writer who we've talked quite a bit about before on this podcast, and that's Robin Armines Coleman in her book, Horror Noir. So to quote from her book, and she, um, you know, has a section on Spawn, the mm -hmm. film, and then, um, then she talks about Blade. So at the end of the Blade section, she writes, in the end, Blade, like Spawn, would keep a watchful eye over the human race, not letting the monsters win. Together, they are the uber police, the kind of social regulator one would expect to patrol hostile environments. Hell demons and vampires are not the purview of typical saviors. Rather, they are a job for monsters, willing to police their own kind. The two superheroes gave new meaning to black-on-black evil crime. So I think she's reading in a lot of the, again, this kind of policing overtone to the film mm -hmm. and a lot of these kind of conservative values that are a bit more insidious within the film. Okay. And that there is, you know, to paraphrase Blade, there is a level of representation that is fine and sugar-coated, but then underneath it, there are different politics at work. Mm -hmm. um, and then I also want to mention, and we're going to link this in the show notes, um, an article by Catherine Feeney and it's called The Black Hero, A Cultural Impossibility. I don't have a quote from this piece because 
I frankly couldn't pick one. It's mm. not long. So I highly recommend reading it if you're interested. And it was like, oh, wow, I've gotten a lot of things wrong. <laughs> um, but it's fascinating. And her ultimate, I think, kind of gist of the piece, to paraphrase, um, but that within the film, it has, again, the surface representation. However, Blade is coded as white, in many ways, whereas the vampires, who are pretty much, I think, all white, are coded as black within their behavior. Hmm. And I, that's kind of the face and thought I had. But then I didn't have a way, like, I couldn't argue that. She cites a lot of different things. She's, you know, bringing in a lot of different discourses into this, again, relatively short piece. But again, this, you know, kind of superhero who, like, plays by the book and does things right and is kind of removed and has an almost sobering presence within the film. And then again, these kind of quote-unquote animalistic vampires who are sexual, who are not pure, again, air quotes there. Mm -hmm. There is coding things that, that are happening within that film that uh, she picked up on and I think are really interesting. That is interesting. I would like to check that out. Uh, I think what occurs to me as a bit of a knee-jerk reaction was, like you said, said, this film is full of tensions among communities and within communities. And I feel like, you know, there are the young vampires who are party, party, party. And then there were the elder vampires that operated very much like a corporation. And when they were sitting around a boardroom, they were predominantly white, but I did pick up on some representation. There were people of color within that. There were people of color within Deacon Frost's entourage. And I also picked up on the fact that the public was often like, it was kind of an undisclosed city uh, that was always in ruins, always covered in graffiti, like, you know, shots will be fired in the street and people will kind of run, but they also won't notice that Deacon Frost is holding up a little Asian child by her fucking throat and stuff like that. I read Blade as a very liminal character throughout. Almost every single one of these tensions between communities and within communities, he's always in between. And so with regard to reading him as white, I was just kind of like, you know, his pseudo dad mm. is Frost. Yeah, which is kind of white, and uh, and Frost acts in many ways as a slave keeper. This is something I read about in an article called "Blade and the Power of Liminal Privileged." Uh, it was uh, written by Brady Simonson in 2019, and it was very well researched and fully cited. And I'll drop it in the in, in the show notes. The author points to how Frost appears to keep black women around him as sex slaves. Uh, Blade's mom, as well as in an earlier scene when like a nubile, sexy black woman crawls out of his coffin. Yeah. Hey, baby, don't keep them waiting. Went right over my head the first time, and I was just like, I want to be her. And you know what's interesting, um, just to jump in quickly, is that 1967, as I mentioned, um, we're kind of in the midst of the you know civil rights movement. But in 1967, the Jim Crow laws that made interracial marriage illegal were overturned by the U.S. Supreme Court on July 12th, 1967. Mm -hmm. And that's where we see... Deacon attacking a black woman. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, we've got Blade and the fact that his leading lady is also a woman of color. I remember the first times watching it, wondering if they were going to hook up. And certainly there's a scene where he feeds on her that is pretty steamy. Oh, wow. Because I, that was my like red alert like, oh, I'm not comfortable with this scene. Because oh. she keeps saying stop. Uh, and she's trying to push him off her. Uh-huh. 
and he doesn't stop. Yeah. And that I was like, wow, okay, that was went right over my head. But now watching it, I was like, oh, yes. I guess I just meant that with all the grunting and panting and consent issues, it did it, it felt like sex. But they don't actually hook up. Good sex shouldn't have consent issues. I'm sorry. But once again, before we move on from this topic entirely, I, it, it's telling to me that I was able to find the bulk of my research came out in 2018, 2019, because Black Panther was coming out. Yep. And it was such a big deal. And a lot of people were saying, hey, Blade walked so Black Panther could run. I found uh, an article by Justin Charity in 2018 that I'd like to share, um, who wrote about how most movies featuring Black superheroes, like a list that I hadn't even heard before, which is telling, uh, movies like The Meteor Man from 1993, Blank Man in 1994, Steel, and in some ways Spawn, uh, these movies were more spoof and cheese than anything else. And they almost like satirized the idea that a Black superhero in a white world can be taken seriously. And so, you know, I think it's worth pointing out that Blade really plays it straight. Yes. Yeah. He's not a joke. He's not fucking around. I don't know. I don't. I don't want to go against uh, people of color writing about this, but I didn't read him as, as as whitewashed. Well, and I and I think this is where it's like we can have our conversation only so far. You know, I came across black writers who had very divergent opinions that's about right. Blade, and that's fine. That's part of the discourse. Yeah. And certainly, while I think my read of the film is much more in line with. Nama's read that I mentioned earlier, I'm starting to see more and more of what Armin's Coleman and Feeney are referencing. Like, I, again, encourage you to read those pieces because they make a lot of great points. I immediately kind of went, huh? And then I was like, huh? Oh. And I couldn't immediately, like, knock down the arguments at all, nor should you take it on, think right. about it. But the more I thought about it this week, I'm like, these are really interesting points, and I think they're going to stay with me, and I'm going to have to think them through. I mean, this isn't like a pass-or-fail type situation. At no, all. Like, especially for us two white ladies. Well, and, and, and for all of its warts, this was the 90s. Mm-hmm. So any good representation is kind of worth a... Well, and I, and I think, to Andrea, your point, um, there is an article from The Independent that we'll link in the show notes, the title of which is How Blade Created the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Uh. Um, so this article uh, shares that by the mid-1990s, Marvel was dealing with movie adaptation disasters like Howard the Duck, the original Fantastic Four movie, and the comic retail market was crumbling. In 1996, Marvel filed for bankruptcy, and Blade's success, which was kind of like unforeseen helped pave the way for other films of Marvel characters like the X-Men movies and Sam Raimi's Spider-Man trilogy before the rise of the MCU. Mm. And the writer of the piece, Ed Power, also points out that uh, the Blade film set a foundation for the way that the MCU would treat certain characters. So to quote, this is the idea to take an obscure Marvel character and treat them as if they are as important as Batman or the Hulk. And this can be seen in Iron Man and replicated throughout so many other modern superhero movies. I think a lot of people always make the joke about like Spider-Man, like if I have to see Uncle Ben get fucking shot or if I have to see Batman's mother's pearls fall to the ground again, <laughs> I'm going to riot. So I think now we're seeing like actually it's better to kind of draw people in a bit halfway through. We yeah. get the origin story. Yes. And then coincidentally, I am also reading right now, I'm a bit more than halfway through Parker Posey's autobiography. And it's called You're on a Plane, a self-mythologizing memoir. The conceit of the book is she treats you like um, 
that the prose of the book is like you're sitting next to her on an airplane mm-hmm. and she's just chatting to you about her life. And it's very charming and it's very funny. And she does have a chapter about uh, when she was shooting Blade Trinity. And I think she's like the, I haven't seen that one in a long time, but she's like the head bad vampire in that mm-hmm. movie. And so this is a quote, I've abridged it down a little bit just for clarity, but it's quite an interesting chapter, you know, that she was finally doing a big, you know, mainstream film and she wanted to go all crazy with the character. She always had to kind of keep pulling it back and there's a lot of strange tensions on set. So anyway, to quote Posey, there was an art imitating life thing going on with Blade. Wesley was possibly losing control of the franchise to the younger and whiter Ryan Reynolds and Jessica Beald, who both starred in the third film. I knocked on Wesley's door and sat at the table in his trailer. I could tell he was in battle mode because his sunglasses never came off. He finally said something like, you don't understand. You don't understand the full story. He was taken by the part of Blade and battling in a vampiric world. Wow. Yeah, I love that because because it was something that I wanted to bring up that Wesley Snipes really uh, really had ownership over this character. Mm-hmm. And when we talk about representation, I think it's worth talking about. Yes, white writer. Yes, yeah. white director. Yes, I'm assuming a group of white dudes around a boardroom. But Wesley Snipes did all of his own stunts. He served as producer on the tell. first film. You can tell that this means a lot to him. Uh, he championed it all the way through. I, I believe that conflict with uh, with Reynolds and Beale went as far as a lawsuit uh, in the third film. I saw something on Wikipedia about that, but uh, it, it appears that they settled out of court. Maybe money changed hands, but uh, but nobody admitted anything or allowed anything. And uh, you know, with regard to the reboot that uh, is largely underway. The really making a huge effort to have people of color behind the scenes. Yes, and uh, Blade is going to be played by Mahershala Ali uh, in the new film, which I think is set to come out maybe 23 or 24. I'm not sure yet. Something like that. Uh, they've secured Stacey Osei-Kufur to write it, who wrote the HBO Watchmen series, and then the Pakistani filmmaker Bassam Tariq to direct. And Snipes had campaigned for many years to return to the role in a Blade 4 that never got realized, but he's on record as having given Ali his blessing to take the character into the future. I love Mahershala Ali. I will absolutely go see the new Blade, like, opening oh, weekend. Yeah. yeah. I don't know how you top Wesley Snipes' Blade. I don't know if he'll top, but I think, like, just give his own portrayal of the character. That's all you can ask for. But, oh, like, re-watching it, I was like, God, Wesley Snipes owns this part. And one of my favorite things in kind of recent cultural memory that happened, and I rewatched it this week, and I was like, gosh, this is a delight. I think it's the season finale of the first season of What We Do in the Shadows, mm-hmm. the Vampire Council. Yeah, yeah. Um, where they have, like, it's Tilda Swinton and Evan Rachel Wood and uh, other kind of famous vampires. And then Wesley Snipes Skypes in mm-hmm. and, like, his signal's bad. And it's just, like, it's so funny. Calling in via Skype. We have Wesley over there, the day walker. Wesley. Hey, Wesley. This Look at him then. God, not this fucking guy. He is a vampire killer. Hey, he is half a vampire. His opinion still counts. Yeah, well, I'm only listening to half his opinion. Look at him in the sunlight. Showing off. Wesley, can you hear us? There's a lag. The Skype seems glitchy. Hello? Push the mute button. It looks like a little microphone. It's got a, got a ring around it. it. Can you hear us now? I can hear you. Dog greetings. Okay. Great. Moving on. And so it was so pleasing that, you know, he was part of it. And like, if we're going to have this 
like little cultural moment of vampires. You know, everything from the original Buffy the Vampire Slayer movie to Blade to True Blood, um, that he was there and having a lot of fun with it, mm-hmm. it seemed like. And yeah, I think it's incredible. I think this film is really special and it definitely yeah. looks good when contrasted with the next film that we're going to see. I don't want to leave the blood rave, Andrea. I know. Don't make me. Let's take a break. We'll come back. And then we're going to talk about Constantine. Joke's on you. I'm always at the blood rave. Sure about this? No. (laughs) Mr. Constantine, I'd like to ask you a few questions. I know the circles you travel in, the occult, exorcisms. Easy there, hero. That's Dragon's Breath. I thought you couldn't get it anymore. Oh, I, uh, <clears throat> I know a guy who knows a guy. I thought that you could at least point me in the right direction. Yeah, okay, sure. Please. What if I told you that God and the devil made a wager for the souls of all mankind? No direct contact with humans. That would be the rule. Just influence. See who would win. Demons stay in hell. Angels in heaven. They call it the balance. I need to see what you see. You do this, there's no turning back. You see them. They see you. Understand? demon slash angel seer and heavy smoker John Constantine is on a mission to save souls in L.A. He hopes if he saves enough souls, he'll be let into heaven when he dies, as his current fate tells him he's headed to hell after a failed suicide attempt in his teens, which was brought on due to his psychic and supernatural abilities. As Constantine notices a rise in demons emerging from hell, he meets Angela, a detective who is investigating her deeply Catholic twin sister's suicide. Constantine and Angela uncover a prophecy that Lucifer's son, Maman, can be born on Earth and conquer it. Maman needed a powerful psychic, which Angela reveals her twin sister, Isabel, was. Angela realizes that Isabel killed herself to stop the prophecy from becoming a reality. Angela reveals that she also had psychic power 
powers, but repress them. Constantine helps Angela reawaken them to discover who's behind these prophecies becoming foretold. In doing so, Maman uses Angela to try and cross over, and the Archangel Gabriel reveals themselves to be working with Maman to punish humanity and see who is truly worthy of God's love. Constantine slits his wrist, knowing that Satan himself will come to collect his soul. When Satan appears, Constantine points out what's happening, and Satan stops the prophecy. As Constantine lays dying, he asks that Isabel's soul be sent to heaven, and the devil agrees. The devil begins carrying Constantine to hell, but God intervenes, allowing Constantine to enter heaven for his sacrifice. Satan will have none of this and heals Constantine, including removing his lung cancer, allowing Constantine to live so he might fuck up enough to be sent to hell in the afterlife once again. There's a lot of other bells and whistles to this film. Uh, I didn't even talk about how Gavin Rossdale is in this film. It, it, it's a big selling point and, and, and remains one of my favorite things about this film. Oh, it's that a says cast. a lot about the film. Gavin Rossdale, Peter Stormare, Tilda Swinton, even like Rachel Weiss. I didn't look at where exactly this was in her career because I came to this film late. I only saw this film when I was starting to do research on hell mm. to put together a lecture. It came out in 2005. I definitely didn't see it for years upon opening. So I didn't hear good things. Yeah, I think I saw it around when it came out. And then I rewatched it a few years ago with uh, my friends Jenny and Darren. And um, I was like, oh, this should be way more fun than it is. Yeah, it's not. And there are so many interesting nuggets. There's so much like theological threads that you want to chase. And I did trace them to prep for this episode as much as I could. But a lot of them went nowhere. And uh, I find this film frustrating because I really want it to be better than it is. You know, when a film just sucks, you oh. can write it off. And that's oh, sorry. That. Do you find it problematic that our hero is essentially a religious ice agent? I mean, that could be interesting. That could be fun. Problematic, yes, but entertain me. I mean, this is the thing. is like it sets this world up where, like any anti-hero, Constantine is out for himself, but we're throwing around the term half-breed an oh. awful lot. Uh -huh. And unlike Blade, there's no critique of it. There's no deeper understanding of this. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, Constantine sees his mission as, like, he says deportation. Again, Oof. there's no critical analysis of it. The film doesn't actually take an original set of worldview, and it changes at the end. Yeah. If anything, it's reified. Yeah, oh, totally. Uh, black and white, good and evil, even though, you know, the devil kind of allows him to keep suffering. Like, I have thoughts on that, but you're right. Like, goodness prevails, and all good people go to heaven. Well, can we talk a little bit about John Constantine or Hellblazer, as he was originally known? So I found a really great article um, on The New Inquiry, uh, and it's called The Devil You Know by Ken Chen. And it's all about the origins of John Constantine and the role he played as part of, you know, the original stories he was part of. And then, you know, through Swamp his, thing. Yeah, the Swamp Thing through his own series, Hellblazer. Mm -hmm. And the goal was always to situate John Constantine as a left-wing anti-hero who fought Satanists and Margaret Thatcher because John Constantine is from Liverpool. He's a Scouser, a Liverpudlian, whatever you want to call it. Um, 
uh, and he's working class, decidedly working class. Uh, to quote this piece, the devil you know, the horror in the early issues of Hellblazer is characteristically unspectacular, rarely inspiring the sublime dread of, say, a Cronenberg movie. The body horror in the comics is mundane, almost quaint. This is because Hellblazer aspired to capture the horror genre in service of left-wing allegory. It was no diversionary spectacle, but a straightforward presentation of horror of a triumphant far right. Activist in orientation, bohemian in sensibility, Hellblazer was variously unpleasant. And John Constantine, or uh, JC as I've referred to him in my notes, uh, was designed as counterculture, and he was drawn to look like Sting, and imagined by writer Alan Moore, uh, who created the character, uh, and this is, again, to quote Ken Chen, as a class reversal of the fantasy wizard archetype. Most genre sages belong to the upper classes, unlike the rabble whose fates they aggur. Constantine was a blue-collar lad, more like an amoral noir detective. He goes on to say, Hellblazer represented an attempt to use genre fiction as a way to more accurately describe right-wing ascension. Hmm. I mean, uh, fertile ground for a really critical movie. Too bad that's not what we got. I wish I could see that movie. <laughs> yeah, that's my research painted the same picture. A really streetwise, working-class guy, very well-connected, chain smoker, openly bisexual. Mm. Uh, came up a lot in my notes, whereas, you know, the film just kind of took a bit more. I, the fact that he's always in a suit is a very noir detective, working-class type thing, but he's also, I never got the sense that he was especially competent because he's got a wide roster of help. He's got kind of, you know, somebody doing the research for him, somebody taking care of the occult shit. He's got Chaz, played by Shia LaBeouf, driving him around and serving no other purpose, really. Oh, except for like a weird setup for a sequel that never materialized. Oh my God, his death scene was so dumb. <laughs> uh, the director, Francis Lawrence. Uh, he went on to do uh, The I Am Legend with Will Smith. Also, um, <laughs> he did, I think, three of the four Hunger Games movies. <laughs> Basically, he's doing fine, despite what we're saying right now. This was his debut, and yeah. so somebody saw this film and was like, let's just shower him with money. Cool. So, obviously, the name Constantine, for those of us who grew up Roman Catholic, is like, that's a person. That's a, that's a thing. This is drawing from something real. And so I did some research on Constantine the Great, who is considered the first Christian emperor of Rome, and he's why they started calling Rome Constantinople for a while. And he's called the first Christian emperor because he did a lot of reform that was really good for Christians. He abolished crucifixion, for example. He allowed Christians to observe Sundays and Saints' Days as holidays and stuff like that. But his reign is a lot more characterized by his war heroism and his political ambition. And he did claim that he saw visions from God and that there were omens that helped lead him in battle, but that was probably just to convince the people to back his actions. Basically, his Christianity was mostly political. It was more about preserving and expanding the Roman Empire, which he did. And so I think it's really interesting that this version of Constantine that we see in this film, like the real Constantine, went down in history as a reformer of outdated Christian practices and rules. And then movie Constantine, he doesn't have the power to reform, but he problematizes the rule around suicide victims going straight to hell. 
Mm. And uh, he makes it seem very unfair and arbitrary when applied to people like him and Isabel, which it absolutely is. And, you know, I think it's worth talking about how there's nothing explicitly in the Bible condemning suicide. That was that was something that came about with the reign of Augustine, who was a theologian and bishop who converted to Christianity later. And this was this was post-Constantine. So that, that's the most... <laughs> I could get to that. Augustine was kind of, um, he was kind of a pain in the ass. He he was big in the development of the doctrine of original sin, where we're all damned thanks to that bitch Eve corrupting innocent Adam. We all know this story. And nowadays, mainstream Christianity focuses a lot more on redemption, that anyone can gain access to the kingdom of heaven if they repent their sins and embrace Christ. And I think this is probably just to keep up with the times, to allow people to convert, to appeal to you know, obviously it's been adopted by many 12-step programs to appeal to those who feel like they've fallen too far from grace to change their lives. So Constantine is moral crusader in a certain sense, but he's also a victim of unchangeable dogma. And insofar as God bends the rules for him in a certain way, uh, there is a very clear black and white, and you have to play by God's rules Mm -hmm. in this universe. Yeah. And, And I think the problem that this film has is it never questions that. That's right. Um, Because what I took from Constantine, the film, as like what it's saying about its world and religion is that individuals are corruptible, but the system is not. Therefore, again, as I was saying, reifying the system. And this is kind of where we get into uh, a theory. And I think you've talked about this before. um, It's come up in your sociology studies about uh, kind of celestial bureaucracy, Mm. uh, that the afterlife is actually much more like the DMV than we might (laughs) want to think. Mm -hmm. Um, and that heaven and hell are so traditionally imagined in this film. Like there is a sequence in, oh my God, multiple sequence of this film where they go to hell because it's like, oh, nothing's happening in the movie for five minutes. Let's go to hell. Let's get this red filter on. Yeah. And such a boring hell. It's it's such a boring hell. It's confusing to me that it's so empty. So maybe Gabriel has a point. Um, and it, it uh, Francis Lawrence talks about how he wanted it to be like an atomic bomb had exploded exploded and sure, I guess. But when Constantine at the end is like ascending to heaven, the one moment I did enjoy of this film was when he's ascending to heaven and he gives the finger. Uh-huh. I was like, that I like. Anyway, but he's ascending to heaven and it is the most basic version of heaven. And celestial bureaucracy and this idea of, you know, the afterlife is so strange because we aren't going, as this film posits, we're not going to our own individual heaven or hell. Mm-hmm. We're going to these standardized versions of it. Mm-hmm. And then is that really heaven or hell if we are in a standardized version of it. Yeah. This came up in my research on heaven and like the bulk of that lecture was that movies are modernizing the traditional conceptions of heaven and hell to be a personal, a more personal thing, like about your your personal consequences. And, you know, sometimes good and bad isn't black and white. Sometimes you can do good for bad reasons and vice versa. And, uh, you know, if anybody upstairs is paying attention, that's that, that's going to be in consideration. This is such a conventional, boring heaven and hell with really bureaucratic rules. You're right. It's 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 not imaginative. It didn't fall nicely into my research, uh, nor was it an especially interesting one. No, and I think that's why it's still, like, this feels like such a mainstream reading of religion, mm-hmm. and why I think they were very subtly marketing it. I did see in uh, one of the pieces I was reading that they had uh, PR dead 
dedicated to religious outreach. Really? Because while it is like, it's a horror superhero movie, it's very traditional yeah. in so many ways. I also thought its treatment of like mental illness was really strange. And I, mental, it's like I have it in my notes as mental illness or religious prophecy. Uh, this is something we've seen throughout history. Uh, people have visions and then it's like, oh, are they suffering from something like schizophrenia? You know, but this film posits like, no, it can be real visions and, you know, you are seeing real demons. But in the real world, in our world, that's not the case. That doesn't happen. Oh, it doesn't? No. <laughs> No. Uh, this kind of conflation of like religious and psychic abilities to kind of move beyond like mental illness into something real. And that if you succumb to not believing in the things that you're seeing, then you're damned to hell. Right. So this emphasis on belief is so strong. And that's kind of what stuck with me. Yeah, it's true. It's that these abilities are what they are. It's whether or not they are perceived to be good or evil, perceived to be suffering or, you know, something that maybe helps you do good insofar as Constantine is kind of doing good in and his I'm, exorcism. I mean, what's interesting, again, I, again, I'm really, Andrew, you can attest, I'm really using the air quotes here when I talk about half-breeds, um, but the notion in this world that half-breeds, um, again, it's a super problematic term, and I can't believe, even though this was 2005, that they were walking around using this term without a lot any critical, like, hey, what if at the end of the film they discover that it's not actually appropriate to use this term? Well, like, ten years prior, Blade is dealing in the same liminal spaces without ever really harping on that term quite as much. No, and they actually illustrate how this notion of pure-breed, half-breed, pure-blood, uh, uh, blood lines are constructed. Yeah. yeah, they're not real. Mm -hmm. uh, anyway, uh, this notion that you know humans have free will, but you've got you know your uh, half demons and your half angels whispering, and you can do either. And I thought it was so interesting that the demons are super fucking chatty, mm -hmm. and you get I think a scene in the liquor store with one angel, and you just see the wings, mm -hmm. and it's like that that person doesn't say anything. Oh. The only angel we hear from is the one that is ultimately corrupted, and that's Gabriel. Right. And Gabriel is uh, like a full, no, a half angel, uh, whatever. Whatever indeed. Gabriel intrigued me and I was just kind of like, oh, like Tilda Swinton's fucking amazing. When she takes that shot in the face and experiences pain the first time, I like laughed out loud. Delightful. Thank you for this gift so late in this runtime. But Gabriel is traditionally an archangel, angels of the highest rank. The Catholic Church only recognizes three from scripture, Michael, Raphael, and Gabriel. And among them, Gabriel gets the pretty good gigs. Gabriel is the one who visited the Virgin Mary and told her about that God was about to knock her up and stuff. And I was so taken with uh, with Gabriel's story. It reminded me of that Kevin Smith movie, Dogma. Oh, yeah. uh, you know, like the idea of, of heaven and earth and angels and demons coming to play in the mortal realm in a modern context is delicious to me. I love that. Just didn't do it right. And even the idea of the angels being jealous of humanity, that actually leans closer to Greek mythology where the gods were jealous and spiteful lovers, and there are so many myths about Hera punishing everyone that Zeus fucked around with, and he fucked around with everyone. But also the gods were often jealous of the favor shown to the human race by Zeus. And, you know, Gabriel, in the film, she states that only human 
humanity is capable of receiving God's forgiveness, and she finds humankind so unworthy of that honor, and, and oh, you're doing this for the wrong reasons, and that's her, her whole scheme. But uh, I wasn't able to find any scripture or legend that supported that attitude, and once again, that attitude, again, didn't hold up when Constantine was effectively forgiven. Yeah, and I mean, again, it's very much like this one thing can be corruptible, but not this whole system, which totally works like capitalism. Right? Don't worry about how much your groceries cost these days. It works. <sighs> now, Gabriel's big sticking point with Constantine is that, yeah, you're doing good, but it's not for the right reasons. You can't do good to get into heaven. You have to do good for good's sake, and then you get into heaven, which, like, come on, what? And what? And it brought me back to a, another lecture that uh, I, I was doing notes on uh, about martyrdom. That was an essay that I wrote. And martyrdom versus suicide, it's really all in the perception. It's all in the way it's packaged. It's all in the way that story serves or doesn't serve the people surviving that event. And, you know, I understand martyrdom as embracing suffering for the sake of one's convictions, whereas suicide, when viewed as a sin, as it is in this film, is an escape from that suffering. And Constantine kind of like walks in between these two worlds. And yeah, the only difference is in reframing his understanding of his suffering, which is so boring. Hmm. So basically what we're looking at is that suffering in life is kind of inherent. Oh, it's it, whether you lean into it or you lean away from it. That's right. Uh, we've talked about this in episodes past and uh, you mentioned the kind of theory and history of heaven and hell being designed to keep serfs and laborers in line. Yes. If you suffer in this life, you'll get something great in the afterlife if you don't make too much of a fuss. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So this seems to be once again affirming that. And there is something like minorly delicious in the idea of the devil being like, you know what? You want to go to heaven? No. You get to stay on earth. And so, yeah, I, I do think that this film is steeped in the idea of life as suffering, and you have to suffer as nobly as you can because the best you can hope for is martyrdom. Blech. I wanted to talk a little bit about this. I thought in, in this viewing of Constantine, it's really a byproduct in this kind of like post 9-11 era of cinema, mm. you know, kind of, you know, came four years after 9-11, but it also kind of feels like pre-Trump cinema in some ways. So I found this article, How 9-11 Changed Cinema by Maria Flood and Michael C. Frank. Uh, and this is in the site, The Conversation, and we'll link it, of course, in the show notes. And they identify a couple tenets of post 9-11 cinema. One of them is moral ambiguity, uh, which is, you know, allusion to the war on terror. Mm -hmm. Yes, there was terrorism within the U.S., but then they attacked the wrong nation. And who is a terrorist? It's just within the viewpoint of any given country or person. Oh, sure. Um, and, and torture is okay under the right circumstances yeah. and so ambiguous. So within films in the post 9-11 era, this is where you see um, uncertain motives. And in this film, there are a lot of uncertain motives. We don't know what's happening a lot of the time <laughs> until the end when religion is proved right, right and corrects what has gone on and what almost happened. Another thing they mention is terrorist and hero. So the notion in this film of Constantine as the anti-hero who then becomes the hero, you know, in this film, 
Gabriel is essentially the terrorist, the one who's ready to upend a system. Mm -hmm. But in Gabriel's mind, they're right. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, just but for the film, we're so aligned with Constantine. We can't see him as anything but the hero. And given the tropes and what we know of a mainstream movie, we expect him to behave less selfishly as the film goes on. Whether it's earned or not, this is what we expect of this character. This is going to be his arc. And so when it's revealed to be Gabriel at the end, it's supposed to be this like shock and awe of this, you know, perfect angel. How could they? And I think that's a very complicated thing because again, it's, uh, if we look back at moral ambiguity, terrorist and hero, again, it's whichever viewpoint you're looking at it from. That's right. Um, I still might side with Gabriel that hell looked real empty. That's right. And maybe God's work is, is, you know, clearing up the mess on here. <laughs> and the final thing they identified as post 9-11 cinema is freedom and victory. And the big question is for whom? What's freedom? What's victory? Uh, if you look at the war in Afghanistan and then, you know, what recently happened with uh, the U.S. removing itself from Afghanistan, fucked up. Yeah. It's really fucked Nobody up. Nobody won that shit. And nobody no. won this movie. No. Uh, so those were some of the tenets of post 9-11 cinema. And I, I think Constantine kind of fits the bill in several of them. And then, you know, as pre-Trump, again, this kind of notion of air quotes here, half-breeds, repeated uncritically, the notion of deportation and internal discord, surveillance, and servitude are all elements that would come to define the Trump presidency. Mm-hmm. You know, if Keanu Reeves had been like, build that wall, build that wall. I would be like, (laughs) he probably wants to build the wall to hell. I don't know. Like this political religious miredom that this film situates itself in Mm -hmm. is so gross and icky. And it just feels like this, you know, continued evolution of the far right. Mm -hmm. But here it's using the masking of horror and comics and superheroes and antiheroes to deliver a really conservative message. Mm -hmm. Um, And I don't know if you came across this in any of your research, but I, I was seeing a lot of like Constantine reappraised. It's actually great. You were wrong. What? So many of those. No. Maybe I did, and I just you probably ignored them because shut up. Yeah. Uh, there's like a, I think a healthy amount of people out there who are like, this is a great film, and we didn't recognize it. Really? Um, and then recently, I think within the last year, year and a half, Keanu Reeves was on. Um, you know, I think it was maybe Stephen Colbert mm-hmm. saying I would play John Constantine again. Mm-hmm. And it's like. Make it better this time. Yeah. Alan Moore must be shitting. Well, he again refused to have anything to do with the film. <laughs> and, and I think, you know, to that point, I when it came out, I remember hearing the complaints that, well, Constantine is blonde and British. Yeah. So he can't be Keanu Reeves. Uh-huh. And I was like, eh, whatever. So you get a dark haired Canadian to do it. Can't uh-huh. be that bad. And now, like, in this research, I'm like, oh, it's just a completely different story. It's America. Yeah, they use the IP of Hellblazer and John Constantine and, and like some tangential elements to it to tell this quote unquote story. Yeah. You know, I think as fans, we have to give a bit of the benefit of the doubt and see what a filmmaker can bring to something um, and an interpretation. But this is, uh, yeah, they they really fucking miss the mark and they should have just called it something else completely. Yeah. Um, I did watch a few compilations of the uh, Constantine TV series, okay. which I thought was also interesting because there was, I believe it was on the CW, a brief series with a blonde uh, Northern English John Constantine. They didn't call it Hellblazer. They called it Constantine again. Yeah. You know. 
know. And apparently, according to, I think it was Wikipedia, they did not call the 2005 film Hellblazer because they were worried about the confusion with uh, Hellraiser. Oh, for fuck's sake. And I was like, listen, we have to actually treat our audiences like they're human beings. This film wishes it would be confused with Hellraiser <laughs> anyway. Even a latter Hellraiser. Way more interesting conception of heaven and hell and goodness and morality and all of that. Yeah. And I think Constantine is like Alan Moore's greatest fear come to life. It totally. This, you know, left-wing anarchist character would yeah. be co-opted by a system, this time Hollywood, to tell a story that actually Alan Moore had no intention of creating. This is the commodification of comic and superhero culture um, that loses the risks and affirms the status quo rather than challenging it. Yeah, and that's thematically. And, and further to that, it's just boring. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like it's it's just not fun to watch. It's not good. I thought it was interesting, but the, the deeper I dove, the more it led to disappointment. I mean, it's a lot of like noise in this film. Mm. And when you actually break down the plot, it's mm -hmm. pretty simple, but mm -hmm. there's a lot of like side characters. This person does that. This person does that. And it's like, it's not that complicated. But the noise was what was most interesting. You wanted it to be the main thing. Yeah. Anyway. Blech. Goodbye to that. Better superhero movies are being made. Superheroes are being problematized. Uh, you know, black and white isn't so black and white. And when it is, I want it to be black and white. You know, I want characters complex. I want rules to be bent. I want authority to be challenged because that's basically what superheroes are, right? Is there people who have the opportunity and the means to provide justice in ways that the institutions can't? And they do so in sometimes flawed and human ways. And that's compelling. And I think this kind of like internal conflict and internal struggle is endemic of superheroes. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you turned me on to the TV show, The Boys. Mm -hmm. Uh, which I think is very anti-capitalist, very anti-establishment you know, establishment in mm -hmm. so many ways, yet it is produced by Amazon. Mm -hmm. And like that's always the kind of like tension between these two things. How can you stand for one thing but also stand for everything? Mm -hmm. And that's often what we ask of our heroes, and that's what we ask of people um, in the spotlight. Yeah. Here's a question for you. If you had a superpower, what superpower would it be? I think I would like to be invisible. I think I'd like to be a fly on the wall and just eavesdrop on everybody. I can see that. Yeah. You would have all the best gossip. I would. Yeah. yeah. I would want to be able to communicate with animals. Oh, oh, that's such a good one. Dante has a rumbly tummy and just looks at me with those sad eyes. Yeah. But what if you fought? What if you argued? What if you didn't get along? With Dante? That's a given. No, with church. No, impossible. Me, church, and moon are best friends forever. Okay. And I feel like I could solve more of the disputes between moon and church. Oh, interesting. Yeah, that would be my goal. If anyone out there can make it happen, I'm all ears. Um, But Andrea... Yes. What's next month? Next month is your choice, friends and neighbors. Uh, as is tradition, we allow this space for our patrons to choose. So we put up a poll. And as is tradition, you guys picked something I did not expect. No, this was one we kind of threw in as a wild card, and then it won? <laughs> it's a fan favorite. It, um... It's bonkers. It's one of those films that has a very heavy-handed allegory, but I think we can still... But also an ooky-goopy, sploshy one. <laughs> we are going to talk about Brian Usna's Society. I feel it 
it's 80s and it feels 80s, but it also really stands apart. It's an oddball and it's a weirdo and it's uh, it's going to be a goopy good time. Yeah. So until the devil strikes us down where we sit. Office hours are closed. Hey